Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation with Francisco Ferreira and Emma Vavalukas, on whether or not things are getting better or worse. If you missed part one, I really encourage you to press pause, go back and have a listen as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. And I'll just warn you, uh, Francisco sounds a little different this week to how he sounds last week. And that's because in the middle of the recording, uh, he had a power outage, but he valiantly got on the phone and we recorded him through that. So, from across London, Athens, and Sydney, here is On the Couch with Francisco and Emma. Okay, thank you, Francesca and Emma. Uh, as you know, in the principle of charity, we are trying to get out of the bubble. We're trying to ensure that at least we are listening to the alternative. We don't have to agree with the alternative, but it forces us out. And hopefully in that way, we get a percentage improvement in the reduction of polarization when at least we can acknowledge the other side and the other side feels heard. In that context, I think I'll start with you, Emma. How would you argue for the best case that actually the world is getting worse? What are the three good arguments for the fact is that the world is actually getting worse, that, it, that it's not making any progress? I think there is a risk that we are complacent around these high-risk events, right, that, that something will happen with climate change uh, or that we're not moving fast enough and something happens that we're not able to walk back from. Uh, the pandemic is another good example that something may happen coming from animals or coming from a lab or from who knows where these days um, that we are not able to deal with because it's a virus that was more fatal um, than uh, COVID was, COVID-19 was. And I think too that the, the, the best argument is that all of this progress that we've had could be at risk if we don't address these large dangers uh, adequately enough. And I don't think that we are on on most accounts. Um, I don't think that we are giving quite enough attention uh, and foresight to uh, risks like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I mean, if you looked at sort of just the alternative, which is the weakness of your argument, you know, I think there would be a view that the optimists like uh, Steven Pinker, Bill Gates, can be seen to be cherry picking uh, their data. Do you think that that that's a that's a fair criticism of people like yourself? I think if you're if you're critiquing what 
the progress network does. Um, again, like I, I'm actually, we're not trying to sell you a story of everything is getting better everywhere all the time. Um, I don't think that it is. And, um, I don't think that anyone could say that to you with, with a straight face. Um, I think what the critique would be is, are you over-focusing on what's going right at the risk of not focusing on what's going wrong? Mm-hmm. And what I would say to that is like, there are plenty of people focusing on what's going wrong. Like we, we are, we're drowning and you know, it, if something bad happens, it's not going to be because we aren't aware of all the things that are going wrong. It might be a foresight issue, like I said before, but I think that we're very aware of what's happening. Um, and it's just that we're not like really acting on it. So mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I think someone like, you know, Steven Pinker, what he's done with his books, I don't think he cherry picks data. And I don't think that people that talk about worldwide progress, you know, in the last 200 years plus are, are cherry picking data. I think when you talk about the last 20 years, that's when you can get into more of an argument of like, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? And what data are you paying attention to? And what data is important? That that argument, I think, is a little bit stronger. Francesca, maybe if you could just articulate the three strongest arguments for why the world is getting better, much better. Let's make it even stronger. Okay. Well, one of them is just the in the long span, the general increase in prosperity, right? So I think this was said before in this podcast, since the Industrial Revolution, we have had massive increases in material well-being uh, for most of the world. And although in the beginning, large majorities were excluded from that progress, the reduction in extreme poverty that we have seen has has indicated that, um, you know, things have been getting better materially for... Uh, a majority of people in the planet. There's still enormous disparity. There's still enormous uh, uh, gaps, uh, but things have been getting better. So that's that's the first uh, thing. And then the mm-hmm. second argument is that along with that, there have been dramatic improvements in health. Um, uh, life expectancy as a sort of summary statistic of how well people how long they live, and, and even when it's quality-adjusted life expectancy has been going up uh, over the long span of history. Again, I, I mentioned before exceptions to that, recent exceptions to that in some countries. Uh, but on the whole, that's certainly been, been happening. And the third one is probably that with some important exceptions, uh, gender gaps between men and women have been declining. Certainly in the West and in Latin America, uh, possibly in parts of Africa and Asia too, There are exceptions to this, as I say, but on the whole, um, in a world where women didn't have to vote almost anywhere 150 years ago, uh, we're now in a a situation where half of humanity um, is, is, you know, enjoying rights similar to that of men uh, to a much greater extent than before. In all of those three cases, of course, you know, there's a long way to go, but those three are arguments, in my view, for why things have been getting better. Emma, how did he do? I think you did better than I did. <laughs> it sounds like you need, you need to get him. You need to get him on your podcast. That's yes. excellent. <laughs> F- F- fantastic. But Jessica, I'm going to stay with you. You, an economist, you, an academic. If you consider the discipline of science, the discipline, the methodology of science, is is it more orientated to pessimism rather than optimism? 
of science? No, I don't think so. I, I think the biases that we were talking about before, which Emma mentioned with respect to the news, to the media in general, I think those are very important. I think science, particularly when it's really scientific, which uh, not all of social science is, but, but when science uh, uh, tries to follow a method of looking at the evidence and testing hypotheses against the evidence, it really shouldn't have a particular bias one way or the other. Mm. What does exist is a, uh, a publication bias. <laughs> so this is well known, right? We know that if you do a study and you find a, a, a nil result, a result that things have not changed or that something did not work, then it's harder to publish than if you find an impact. But that yeah. impact could be either up or down. So the publication bias, if anything, is a systematic bias against finding or publishing results that things are staying the same. Improvements or, or declines, if they're big, both get published. So I, I, I wouldn't say that there is a massive bias that way. That's interesting. I suppose what I was thinking, you know, if we just took a, a simple view, is that part of the scientific method is to critique. And I'll just use that as, you know, being somewhat pessimistic about things. You you, you, you don't take them on, on the face of it. You, you're critiquing, you're picking theories apart, even cynicism, thinking about the alternative is somewhat there. But then I, you know, I consider that to be a scientist, even to conduct experiments over and over again, you have to be somewhat undeniably optimistic. I mean, you just, you know, I think about these scientists who just keep on going and looking for things and you go, like some of them have been you know, we spoke earlier, Emil was chatting about some of the cures. I mean, to just keep on working for 20 or 30 years, there has to be an inbuilt optimism in you. Would, would you agree with that? <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I think so. And again, here, just to come back for a moment to this point I was uh, alluding to earlier, there's a difference between different kinds of scientists, right? Um, so natural scientists, chemists, physicists, um, biologists, and so on, uh, perhaps they have exactly what you just described, a kind of an optimism bias that comes from the idea that persevering with those experiments will lead to something. Also, they are, you know, there's a kind of a selection bias. The type of people that go into the natural sciences have a belief in technology and in science itself as a force for good. I think you may find the opposite with many social scientists mm. and economists, I might argue a bit facetiously or somewhere in the middle. But I think the non-economist social scientists on the whole are people who are very worried about poverty and inequality, and they are worried about, um, you know, structures of power and oppression. Mm. They bring that with them to the debate, and, and they may have more of a sort of a, a pessimism bias. I have certainly found that there is more of a resistance uh, to the idea that anything might be getting better uh, mm. amongst those. So I think, you know, it does depend on the kind of scientist you're talking about. Mm. You, you did so well on the principle of charity around giving an argument for why things are getting better. I'm going to do a principle of charity spot test on you on inequality, which is your field. Can you give the three strongest reasons why inequality is a good thing? That's a, that's a hard one. Uh, I think, you know, the first thing I would say is inequality is a, is a good thing if it's not 
inequality of opportunity. That that is, if it is, if it serves only as an incentive for people who have had the same chances to put in more effort at achieving whatever they are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. I would not argue ex ante that that's a massive force. I have to say, I I am you know I I am not of the view that. Inequality is what makes us all be great inventors. Um, I think there are many other deep motives for why people succeed. But to the extent that some inequality is a reward to hard work and effort and innovation, to that limited extent, then I think it can be a good a good thing. Okay, good stuff. Emma, I was intrigued about, you know, when we introduced you and, and your history as, as a Buddhist. Are you a practicing Buddhist? Is that fair to say? I am, yeah. I'm a, a, a bad one. <laughs> because... why, why are you a bad one? What is a, what is a, a bad practicing Buddhist? You have to explain. <laughs> okay, so let me, um, let me say that I, I went through a little bit of like a personal crisis of faith with Buddhism um, because I was working for a long time. Uh, at a Buddhist publication, uh, particularly around the Me Too movement era. And mm-hmm. a lot of stuff came out um, around then. And a lot of stuff came out <clears throat> that we knew about behind the scenes that we weren't able to publish for various reasons. Um, and that was a really strong... You mean you were censored? Not, no, we weren't censored. It's just that you know a lot of stuff comes up. I don't know if people know this or not, but if you're a journalist, a lot of stuff comes up sometimes that you can't verify Mm-hmm. That you can't publish because people aren't willing to go on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you can't publish because you can't get another account of it. Um, there, there are a lot of rules around you know what, what you can publish in journals, and particularly in the U.S., the the, the etiquette and the rules are, are very stringent. So there was just like a lot of stuff that uh, I knew about. Um, there's a Tibetan Buddhist saying that when you choose your teacher, you should choose someone that lives three valleys away. Meaning like you don't want to see how the sausage gets made. You don't want to mm-hmm. see this person, you know, at their worst. And I was just seeing mm-hmm. a lot of things at their worst. So I kind of like stopped practicing daily and I stopped being associated with a particular community for a while. And then when I moved to Greece, it's um, Buddhism is not uh as popular here, so I've I've struggled to to reconnect with a, a community. So that's why I say I'm a bad Buddhist. That it's mm. it's very much so. I am a practicing Buddhist. It is my worldview. Um, it's very important to me. But as when it comes to being connected to a community and having a daily practice, I'm a I'm a bad Buddhist on that front. So so can I just understand? I mean, this was sort of a a series of potential allegations of. And, and we don't have to get into the detail, but a potential allegations of abuse or things that you felt uncomfortable about and that may have caused you some pain and certainly caused maybe many people pain. And as a result, that has led you to sort of withdraw a little. Is, is that a fair statement? I just, yeah, just... That, that's fair. Um, I, you know, I'd say Buddhism is just like any other institution, religious institution or non-religious institution, uh, humans and their response to power trends in a certain direction. Mm. Uh, things happen. And um, I was very put off by that. Yeah. Okay, so I want to stay with that because in the principle of charity, we often, you know, especially in on in the episodes on the couch, we like to explore some of the subculture and culture of of people's disciplines, and in this case, Buddhism. I am intrigued. We did have an episode on Buddhism and psychoanalysis, and I'm sort of intrigued why a lot of cultures don't build in self critique, and and in this case, why in this Buddhist community. 
was there such insufficient critique of the other that people felt that they could feel so powerful potentially to take advantage? What is happening in that type of Buddhist subculture which allows for limited challenge? That's such a great question. I I, I I had tried to ask a question on a podcast episode of ours about societies and their ability to self-critique, and you worded it so much better. So thank you so much for that, because I'm going to take that with me. I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on. One of them is just the nature of some religious groups that you know, there's a lot of people that have done work on this, right? That you're sort of betraying the group if you bring up an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that carries through for for many kinds of different groups, Mm. actually probably religious and otherwise. Mm. In Buddhism in particular, I would say that there's a, a really interesting tension because a lot of these are being brought over from very patriarchal societies into places like the US, Uh where you have this intense merge of Buddhism, traditional Buddhism is very patriarchal. Uh, you know, a woman's birth is seen to be lower than a man's birth, coming up against women that were raised in a very different society. So a lot of the abuse stuff that was happening in the U.S. Um, was, for instance, a Tibetan Buddhist monk um, and a Western woman. And there's just like a lot of cultural dynamics there uh, that are that are complicated to get into. Um, And I think there's also a particular strain, a lot of the abuse allegations, there's particular strains in Buddhism that you're supposed to look at your teacher as perfect. They're supposed to be your guru. You're not supposed to question them. Um, And that attitude of non-questioning, I think, can very easily lead down the road to abuse. So when somebody comes forward with an allegation, it's seen again as a betrayal of the group, a betrayal of the teacher, a betrayal of the whole, you know, uh, community. And, and it is interesting, and sorry, we have gone a little off track, but I want to stay with this because we did have that podcast on Buddhism and psychoanalysis. But it is interesting that at times being charitable, often in Buddhist practice, can disguise so much discrimination and prejudice and, and, and at times the emphasis so much on conformity that people feel that they can't critique and that people are, are basically censored uh, or self-censored. Um, so that, that's very interesting. I want to come back to, you know, are things getting better or worse? And a question for you, do you ever feel that people think that your optimism is just blind? Do they just <laughs> think, you know what, I mean, it's great to hear Emma, but you know what, she's got this blind optimism and and actually there's a sort of hidden critique that maybe you're not seeing things for what they are and you're just being a little stupid, really. Yeah, for sure. We just had a great uh, review on our podcast, actually, that was like, you, you guys are uh, obtuse and fatuous and, uh, you know, basically idiots. Um, so absolutely, did <laughs> we get that critique. Um, and we try very hard at the Progress Network to say that, like, it's not that we're covering our eyes to problems and saying everything is fine, right? That, that it is a fundamentally stupid position to mm. take. Mm. Um, it's It's not that we're pretending that problems aren't there. We're just advocating for better information and a kind of approach that's constructive instead of despairing. So that's what we're doing. But I do definitely, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to lure people into a false sense of complacency. Like that's not the goal uh, at all. Um, And I don't want to be Pollyannish or naive when it comes to these problems that we have to solve. Mm. So we we try to guard against that. You know, we're we're, we're not trying, like I said, to pretend things are are totally fine because they're obviously not. 
Let me let me come to to both of you. I was at a dinner party recently, and we've got this friend who he's he's a real cynic, an intellectual, but a real cynic. And I listen to him at these dinner parties, and I often come away thinking he's really really smart. And I was wondering, you know, are cynics and pessimists? Do they come across as smarter than optimists? Do, 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 is, that, is that our bias? Do we just listen to these people at these dinner parties and they go off and we think, you know, you're really smart because you can deconstruct the world. But when somebody says the world is getting better, you go, eh, flaky. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's because for some reason when you say, look at all the things that could go right, it just feels waffly. It just feels like you're like you were asking me before it feels naive for some reason like we have a very like deep rooted sense i think of humanity's kind of badness um and that human humanity's sort of like ability to cause problems um which we do have a very strong ability to cause problems so we also have a very strong ability to solve problems and i think that story just hasn't been told and it requires a little bit of uh of retelling and redoing information in a way that can seem dumb, you know, when compared to a story that you've already heard that you're a, you're it's much easier to tell a story that you've already heard with a lot of intellectual fervor. It sounds right to us. Mm-hmm. So that that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Francesca, if, if I went to the LSC tomorrow, and maybe maybe there is this already, but l- l- I'm going to assume there isn't. I went to the, the you know the LSC. I spoke to the, the vice chancellor, and I said, "Look, Francesco is in you know is in the inequality studies. He's heading this up. Why don't we we set up an alternative department called Progress Studies, where what we do is we look at all the examples." where progress has been made in a substantive way, understand how that progress was made and, and dig into it and, and learn how we can tackle all problems. Do you think the LSE would, would, give, would get some funding for that? Uh, uh, it, it, it already has. I think they would point you to the International Growth Center which tries to do more or less exactly what you just described. Let me just clarify. Is the Growth Center... Is that just about the economy or is it actually looking at progress across the board? Well, it's a, it's about the economy, but the economy very broadly understood. So I think they would look at progress that leads to any kind of well-being, not, not just uh, – they would certainly look at progress in health. They would look at progress in education and so on and so forth. I mentioned this one particular center, but um, – uh, you know, on the whole, I think many economists, particularly development economists, are actually fascinated by why, what drives success, what drives progress. Mm. So um, I, I think you wouldn't you wouldn't find it there. As I said before, I think in some other disciplines that's less the case. It's more mm. about understanding why everything is terribly oppressive all the time. Mm. Mm. But I think amongst economists, there really is a uh, uh, in some cases, an openness you know, to, to understanding mm. what it is that makes things better, even when we still acknowledge, of course, that many things mm. um, remain terrible. Mm. Mm. Can I just stay with you, Francesca? We spoke with Emma about sort of Buddhism and the subculture around it and debate. We've chatted on this podcast also to other social scientists, and, and it does come up 
In your department, in the department around inequality at, and, and, and looking at other LSE academics, how much debate, I mean, how many right-wing conservative intellectuals do you have at the LSE or in the inequalities department? Or is, is, is it just a bastion of left-wing social scientists and economists? At the International Inequalities Institute where I am, I would say you're right. I can't think of anyone that I would describe as a right-winger. At LSE more generally, that is not necessarily true. I think they are a minority, but they are there. I mean, the name um, Hayek, Friedrich von Hayek, may mean something to you. He he wrote The Road to Serfdom, a very important book against socialism. Uh, Hayek was, uh, was at LSE. And was a huge influence on uh, on on a sort of more right wing conservative perspective to, to economics, uh, and there were others like him. They are a minority. There's no question. And does that does that worry you about your own institute that you don't have that view, or, or isn't it a concern? So it depends a little bit on the extent to which you want them to be right wing. I do worry a little bit about there being an echo chamber in some parts of the Institute. Uh, I think if you had asked some of my colleagues if there was anyone who was not left-wing, they might have pointed to me (laughs) since I came from the World Bank, uh, Mm. which was a little bit of a shock to the system. Uh, Mm. So perhaps I am moving the Institute a little towards the center, though I tend to think of myself as a left-wing person. I think some of my colleagues might not. Mm. Okay. We haven't spoken really about the culture wars, and and let's just go to to the United States, where where you know where you were born and raised, as I understand. And what's your view about the culture wars? Are they a good thing, a bad thing? Are they a sign of progress? I you know I think that they are a sign of progress in a weird way. I think it's really messy and volatile, um, but I think that messy and volatile is sometimes how how the needle gets moved, um, how things get moved forward. I certainly think that. For instance, like to take one culture war thing around, um, let's say the trans debate, right? It's ugly. Uh, it's very ugly, <laughs> but it's not a debate that would have been happening 20 or 30 years ago. And I think in my view, it's kind of happening because we've put the gay marriage debate to bed in the U.S. Hmm. Like it, it's just not, it doesn't seem to be a situation where we're, ever really going to come to a point in the future where gay marriage is turned around because the approval rating is so high for Republicans and Democrats and independents alike. So I think that it is kind of a sign that we're, we're moving on to not, not, I don't, I don't say smaller issue, like it's less important, but it's a smaller group of people, right? I think the same thing when it comes to something like the woke, anti-woke culture wars. Again, I think it's messy. I think at times it's really ugly. But again, it's a conversation that is very much so in the center, uh, not in the center, like politically, but in this in in the in front of our eyes, that wasn't, you know, um, even 30 years ago. So in that way, I think we are moving along, um, maybe slowly and painfully. Well, that's a, that, along. that is a unique view. I don't think we've had that. We haven't had that on our podcast. We're going to end off with a, a, a very quick game if you're both up to it. And it's, we're going to call it net positive or net negative. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to mention something. And then if, if uh, you can just respond to, to either say it's net positive and net negative and very quickly why you say that. So Emma, I'll start with you. Elon Musk, net positive or net negative and why? <laughs> 
<laughs> I think he's pretty solidly net positive. I think Why? all of the the all the stuff with Twitter, I think, is not really a huge deal. And if we lose Twitter, it's whatever. I think that he's been net positive for Tesla and SpaceX. Okay, good stuff. Francesca, Chinese Communist Party, net positive or net negative? Ooh, net negative. Tell us why. Oh, uh, so the reason I hesitated is the Chinese Communist Party is behind the massive increase in prosperity in China, which has reduced poverty and increased well-being for ages. So that would have been the positive. Mm -hmm. But they are very authoritarian. uh, And I believe that... um, people's right to self-determination and to influencing their societies and their politics through democracy is hugely important. So economic progress doesn't quite make up for it. And for that reason, net negative. Okay. Emma, James Bond, net positive or net negative? (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Gosh, I've never even thought about this before as a positive or a negative thing. I'm going to say... Net negative. Tell us why. For its shockingly boring portrayals of women that don't Mm -hmm. seem to really change as we move Mm -hmm. into the 21st century. (laughs) Okay. Francesca, coal mines in the 19th century. Um, As an economist in the age of the Industrial Revolution, net positive or net negative coal mines when you think about their history? Well, net negative because of the way they were run with child labor, massive use of child labor in coal mines in England. Right. Emma, Fox News. Net negative. Tell us why. (laughs) Uh, Because I think it's very clear from the Dominion lawsuit going on here that Fox News is very much so divorced from being a journalism institution. Um, I think they're just fully on the punditry and telling people what they want to hear and keeping the ratings and keeping the business going. Francesca, Ivy League universities, particularly in the context of inequality, net positive or net negative? If you said Ivy League's university, I would say net positive because although they are uh, elite institutions, they also accomplish an enormous amount in research and the excellence of teaching. Okay. Emma, call marks. I'm going to go with net negative. Tell us why. I haven't seen a country that has followed the backs of his philosophy turn out very well. Um, And uh, particularly the communists here in Greece, I think, pull the country back. Okay. Last one. We have to do this one, Francesco, especially because you're at the LSE. Margaret Thatcher, net positive or net negative? Oh, uh, I I would say net negative. Um, I think Uh, Some of the things she did uh, needed to be done, but she was incredibly callous and insensitive to the well-being of most people in the country. That's not how you should govern. So I'd have to go with net negative. And I think on that note, we are going to close it off. I want to thank both of you, uh, Emma and Francesco. Thank you so much. And before we end off, can you just let us know and let our listeners know where we can find you? Emma, where can people find you? Uh, The best place is theprogressnetwork.org, and that has our newsletter and podcast and everything else that we do. Wonderful. Francesca, how about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, but you can also just find us on the International Inequalities Institute at the LSC. If you Google that, you'll find it. 
Andy Mill, last words from you. No, thanks so much. That was a really fun and uh, insightful conversation. It's a it's a big topic. We can't we can't get across everything that's moving in the right direction and all the challenges in one podcast. But I think we had a jolly good shot at it. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review wherever you get your podcasts because that helps us get this thing out there. And we'll see you very soon with another charitable conversation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.